Please do take a seat. Let's start tonight with uh, another word of prayer, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word, and uh, we ask that you will open it afresh to us tonight, we pray. Amen. Good evening. Rather nice evening, if I might add. It's uh, nice, and thank you for joining us when you could have been out enjoying the sunshine late into the evening. Tonight we're thinking about overcoming the world. Overcome is a very strange and very old word in English. It's existed in some form or other since about the 8th century, as far as we're aware. Everything that we think about, when we think about overcoming the world... Am I accidentally starting that, Adam? So I've just noticed I'm, I'm clicking onwards, apparently. Adam? <laughs> oh, am I good? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Oh, excellent. Thank you. I'm good. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Everything that we think about, we think about overcoming something, is normally something about a hindrance, some kind of enemy, some kind of challenge that we have to rise up and meet, some kind of thing that we have to get out of our way, that we have to beat in some way. We don't overcome good fortune. It'd be a very odd thing to say. I overcame my good fortune. Things that we overcome are undoubtedly either things that are very big challenges or they're things that are very, very negative. They're things that must be endured, negotiated uh, or defeated in some way. If we search the BBC website for things that people have traditionally overcome... Sorry, Adam, I'm stuck again. (laughs) The wonders of PowerPoint. There we go. Uh, We find all sorts of things. We find uh, people looking to overcome prejudice. We find people looking to overcome a drought. We find people looking to overcome terror attacks. A fear of the dark is mentioned. Depression. Uh, We have things like uh, constraints of time. I think that's one that a lot of us can probably relate to. A gambling addiction. Their own greed. Overcoming disability and the trauma of seeing a murder. We find stories where the Scottish rugby team have to overcome Italy. Uh, We find Ireland seeking to overcome the Brexit blues. And we find, appropriately for Wimbledon season, uh, Rafael Nadal looking to overcome the spectacular shot-making of Stan Wawrinka. On Friday, my wife Rebecca and I uh, were given the keys to the first property that we've ever owned after only ever renting in the past. And I learnt, apparently, that there are plenty of DIY challenges to be overcome, uh, including things like putting a new bath panel on. Never had to do that before. Uh, Picking out paint colours. And and I have to say, I think my wife and I managed to do that without too much of an argument as well, which I think, you know, I think that's, that was quite a challenge in itself, something to overcome. And, uh, and a story I'll come back to later about a rather stubborn built-in wardrobe that shouldn't have been where it was, but refused to shift. Sometimes, successfully overcoming something is seen as inspirational. It's seen as something that means that others feel that they can overcome something too. And sometimes that's a bit obscure. One of the BBC radio clips that I came across was headed, Ali's success with conquering her fear of water prompts breakfast show producer to try to overcome her fear of praying mantises. 
Now, I still fail to see, having looked at this in quite some detail, quite how a fear of water and overcoming that inspires somebody with their insect fear, but clearly, according to the Breakfast Show producer, it did. Broadly speaking, we can kind of categorize the things that we have to overcome. We have to overcome certain things that are moral battles. Some things, like greed or prejudice, are moral things. We might include here unhealthy addictions, things like cravings. We might even term lusts in some way. Chocolate, fast food. In my case, the Donner Burger from the Heatherset Fish and Chip Shop. I really do have an unhealthy uh, fascination with that. Some things are not moral, but they are perhaps more intellectual battles. Things that we have to, arguments that we want to win on the basis of our superior knowledge or understanding about a particular topic. We might include here overcoming our fears as being mind over matter, an intellectual thing. Or perhaps navigating very complicated circumstances. And of course some things are physical battles. These might be about an external enemy that we can see and touch, or it might be something environmental. It might be like a drought or a flooding, that kind of situation. Or against personal physical limitations. Many of you know my wife, Rebecca, but many of you probably don't know that she has osteoarthritis and uh, spent about four years where she couldn't bend her right knee at all. Now, she's had an operation, so it kind of will hopefully keep it at bay for about another 10 years. But back when we met, there were various things that it was clear that Rebecca had had to overcome. Namely, the pain, just a function on a day-to-day -day basis. But also very practical things, like learning how to drive when you can't use your right leg. So she'd had to learn how to drive an adapted car, where the accelerator's on the left, and how to drive with your left foot. A real challenge for most of us, and certainly I couldn't have done it. But Rebecca overcame it. She learned how to do it so successfully that most people didn't realize that when she got in the car, the pedals were on the wrong side. Now, some of us tonight will be facing all sorts of different obstacles. Things that are perhaps physical obstacles, things that might be intellectual obstacles, battles to try and keep our jobs battles to, with our personal finances, or maybe moral challenges when our friends' and family's values collide with ours. Tonight, our focus is very much on the world as an obstacle. And we're going to think a little bit about what John means when he talks about this. John, first off, sets the context by explaining that the ability to overcome is dependent on being a child of God. To know who is a child of God, we need to see what that person believes about Jesus. This is looking, if you've got your Bible still open, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. To know who is a child of God, we need to see what that person believes about Jesus. The crucial evidence, says John, is if they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and everything else that follows from that. So far in this letter, John has already made it clear that first off, it's appropriate for Christians to be loving, and secondly, that the command to love one another 
is, a, is an appropriate and legitimate divine command. That that's the sort of thing that, yeah, God can ask of us. So here, in chapter 5, he adds a third reason. He says that it's because of the parent-child relationship that we have with God, love is both obligated and necessary. It's a challenging thing to think about, the fact that actually we can choose our friends. And, you know, with our family, to a greater or lesser extent, we don't normally choose them, but we can adapt our family in a certain way. We can choose to adopt, for example. We can choose to disown, if we so, if we so wish. But when it comes to God's family, it's God who determines who's in it. We are simply called to love and accept our fellow brothers and sisters as Christians, because they love God as we do. Look back with me, if you will, please, in uh, John to uh, chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. So just a couple of verses before the start of chapter 5. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command... Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this follows on very naturally with chapter 5. John's saying that love for God and love for our brothers and sisters go hand in hand. Can't do one without the other. This is, they, they go hand in hand. If we love God, then we obey him, verse 3, and we love his children. Throughout 1 John, we've considered the fact that John isn't dwelling on attraction when he talks about love. He's talking about action. Love here is agape in the translation. It's affection which involves choices. So we choose to love God and therefore we have to love each other. We choose to love each other and treat each other as God would have us do. The love we're called to show is not superficial, but it sees God's children for his grace and image in them. So it's a deep sense of love that there is a choice involved to do it. When we love our brothers and sisters, we show our love for God. And having faith in Jesus and loving each other are not two commands to become a child of God, but they are two expressions, says says John, of what the child of God does. So this isn't John saying, hey, you've got to love your brother and sister and you've got to have faith in Jesus in order to be a child of God. He's saying, if you are a child of God, these are the two indications. These are two things that we do. Child of God. It's quite an interesting phrase. I I, I spent a bit of time kind of exploring this one. It loses something in translation in in the NIV. A more literal translation uh, was given in one of the commentaries, and it puts it this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been begotten of God, and the one who loves the one who begets loves the one who is begotten of him. It's a clever bit of wordplay that we kind of miss. And the reason is that, actually, this is really intimate. The one who has been begetting and we are the ones who are begotten there's an intimate relationship between parent and child which makes the love of them somewhat intrinsically related 
when my wife and I got married, we decided actually after a very quick discussion that we would invite our friends' children as well as our friends. Lots of our friends at the time had just had young babies and did go through my head for a small moment as to the chaos that would possibly ensue. But actually, truth be told, we decided we love the parents deeply. And by extension, by extension, we love their children too. It's a logical thing. And when we look at verses 1 to 3, we know we love God by loving his children. And we know we love the children by loving the Father. That's what John's getting at. Now, Jesus never promised that obeying him would be easy. But as we continue in chapter 5, John says that God's commands are not burdensome because every child of God overcomes the world. Big phrase. The Greek words that are used for overcoming and victory in this passage are from the same root, both of them used in verse 4. His commands are not burdensome, for everyone, of God, everyone born of God overcomes, that's conquers, prevails against the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And this overcoming word, what's in the Greek, nikau, is the same word used in John 16.33 when Jesus himself says that he has overcome the world. So, John's using it quite deliberately. What does he mean, though, by the world? Well, it's the sum of all the limited, transitory powers that are opposed to God and standing in the way of obedience to him. It's if you like, the incentives that we have to sin. That's what John's referring to when we're talking about the world. The things that try to stop us from worshipping God. These things fall into exactly the same categories that we thought about earlier. We thought about moral pressures. The outlook, the standards, the things that society tells us that we should be thinking and doing the cravings that we have, the, the things that the world chases after, that our friends, family, work colleagues, the things that matter most to them that get in the way of focusing on God, the moral pressures, their values that don't line up with God's values, moral pressures. Intellectual pressures, heresy, people f- preaching false things about God, about Jesus. Things that we know aren't true when we know our Lord and Saviour. And physical pressures. We're very fortunate in this country to not experience this quite as blatantly as there are in many countries. But we know that there are people in our church community here who, back home, do suffer these. The heavy persecution just for being a follower of Jesus Christ and being part of God's family. The same overcoming word is used in chapter 2, verse 13, in overcoming the evil one. In chapter 4, verse 4, in overcoming the lure of the false prophet's teachings, our intellectual pressures. It's all part of one great victory, one huge stonking great victory over the powers opposing God and which attempt to turn people from him. We have power far exceeding any kind of strength that we may have on our own strength and the victory of ours is ours if we hold to as it says in verse one that jesus is the christ 
The Son of God who became human to bring us salvation and life. Nothing, no ill, no evil can triumph against confidence, the unending confidence in the divine human person of Jesus. It's a huge thing to say, but John explains all this very well. Our continuing faith in Christ means that we have this ongoing, continuous victory. And it's now. It's not promise of victory in the future. The victory is now. Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God overcome the world. Who wins the battle with this world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, it's fair to say that John's talked a bit about what the world means, and he's talked a little bit about who overcomes it, but how? We have to have the right means to overcome the world. And certainly the case that actually we have to have the right means to overcome any obstacle. I mentioned earlier my lovely uh, built-in wardrobe that was really not where I... I didn't want this built-in wardrobe when we moved into our house this weekend. I'd already planned when I'd done the viewing. This was the first thing that was going. The wardrobe had other ideas. This thing, it was only small. It was only about as wide as my shoulders. But it didn't want to move. And, uh, and you know, just to give you an idea, it was quite narrow. This is the kind of bar that was in this built-in wardrobe. And I wanted this bar out and the one in front of it. And my father and I set to work. And I tried all sorts of different things. I tried a wood saw to get around the wood that was on the end of it. That didn't work. I tried uh, a wrench to try and see if I could twist it out. That didn't work. I tried with an electric drill to try and drill all the way around the hole to see if I could kind of somehow dislodge it. That didn't work. You have to have the right means to deal with this kind of situation, as I began to realize. And the problem was that I suspected that maybe the solution to this particular problem was a tool that I didn't have. Turned out I was wrong. Um, Turned out that my father, who was getting as frustrated as me with the fact that this thing had beaten us for about two hours, decided that there was a tool we had and that it was the perfect means to deal with it. He took a hammer, and it ended up like that. Genuinely, walked in there 20 seconds later, smack, smack, smack. I've never seen him quite as aggressive as that, but that's what we ended up with. The means has to be right. We need to have the right thing to overcome any given obstacle. And sometimes the obstacle's right underneath our noses. How do we overcome the world? Well, the last part of verse 4 sounds a little bit odd in the NIV. It says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. A smoother rendering is that we achieve this victory over the evil world through our faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is like the third rail on a railway line. It provides the power. Our faith is the cause of victory. It is the means. It is the instrument, the armor, the artillery by which we overcome. Without faith, it is the world and the various temptations within it that obstruct our way to heaven. 
But whoever believes by faith that Jesus is the Son of God, who came from God to be the Savior of the world and conduct us from the world to heaven and to God, whoever believes that overcomes the world. Jesus conquered the world, not only for himself, but also for his followers. It is faith in our risen and ascended Savior who will come again. We're not satisfied with this world, so we look beyond it to what is to come. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and we can only overcome the world because Jesus has. We can only overcome because Jesus has. That Christ should overcome. We talked earlier about the fact that when Ali's fear of water was overcome, it inspired the show producer to overcome her fear of praying mantises. The fact that Jesus has overcome the world should inspire us to do likewise. How much should that inspire us in our small human way to do likewise? So if it's crucial that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, how do we know that he is the Son of God? And John's not done because he wants to explain that to us too. He wants to give us the reasons. We've got evidence of Jesus' identity as God's Son. And verses 6 to 9 highlight these credentials. This is like being given, hey, you know, right, you want, you, you want the reasons? Here's, here's your big three. The three testifiers to Jesus being the divine Son of God. The three testifiers, the spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, there is some uncertainty in the interpretation here. Part of that seems to stem from some additional words. If you look in the footnotes on your Bible, right down at the bottom, if you can squint at that, uh, you'll see there are a few additional words found in certain manuscripts. I'm not going to go into those. They are, also, if you're using a King James Bible tonight, you will see those words. They are additionally uh, included in the King James. But I'm going to set them aside on various grounds, more than happy to talk about that later. But suffice to say that most reputable scholars of the last hundred years have discounted these words as not having been a part of the original. But I'm going to move on to probably an even bigger area of debate. The by water and by blood references in this passage are hugely debated. John's phrasing was clearly understood to his readers because of some kind of contextual aspect that we're not party to. But of the three main views that exist now, the one that appears most reasoned is that the water refers to the baptism of Jesus and the blood to his death. Those of you who've been here on a, on a Sunday for a baptismal service will know that if this stage wasn't here right now, I would be in water. Uh, there's a nice baptistry underneath. It's an interesting idea to think of the fact that actually Jesus' baptism is so, so important to understanding this. It's through the water of his baptism that Jesus was declared as God's beloved son and was commissioned and empowered for his work. If you want to chase that up, that's Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17. And through the blood of his death, he was recognized in power as being God's son by other people as it mentions in Mark chapter 15. John Stott recognizes that there may be secondary allusions to kind of the Levitical uh, cleansing and purification rituals, and that's something that's, that's kind of possibly being hinted at, but he said it's not the main purpose. 
And that's certainly the main view that most take. The baptism, the death, and resurrection. To complete the trio, John lists the water and the blood with the Spirit. And as explained in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, when referring to Jesus Christ, it says, He came who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The water blood references also kind of helped John at the time with some rather um, erroneous teaching of the time that Jesus was only the Christ between his baptism and death. And he further makes it clear that John took on our nature in his birth and our sins in his death. And with the Spirit, without whom there would be no life, we have three witnesses. Spirit, water, and blood. Under Jewish law, the testimony of one person wasn't sufficient, but we believe human testimony when it's validated by witnesses. So how much more can we believe the single threefold testimony of God? And it is a single testimony. The three things exist for the same purpose and same cause. So where are we at? If we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, then we are children of God and we overcome the world. And we have a threefold testimony to that very effect. But it's only part of the testimony. Verse 11. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Eternal life is exclusively available through Jesus, his Son. This is a really unpopular thing to say in a relativistic, pluralistic society, that there is only one way. But let me say it again slightly differently. Eternal life is exclusively available through Jesus, his son. Anyone can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is, by definition, life, and through him, eternal life is granted. Christianity is not exclusive, despite the the external impression. Absolutely anyone can decide to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are no tiers of relationship. It's not a case of, as you know, I might fear as a Welsh person, him saying, oh, you're Welsh, that's only 500 years. She gets eternal life, she's English. I sincerely hope that isn't the case. Or perhaps, you know, kind of, well, oh, I don't know, maybe he's going to get 500 years, you know, or maybe you can only talk to him on Mondays. Uh, maybe, oh, I don't know, your prayers will only be answered on every fifth time. Uh, or, you know, leave the message at the beep if we're not available to talk to you. The point is that when we believe, we switch to a different track. One with an assured eternal life with God. That happens the moment we believe, and there's no need to worry about whether it's going to happen or not. We don't need to do additional things to obtain it. Truth is, it's guaranteed, and it starts now. That's the absolutely incredible thing about this. It's not a promise of after we're dead. This happens now. The track is changed. And so it follows that those who have the Son have life, as it says at the end of this passage, and those who do not have the Son of God do not have life. They continue under the condemnation of the Lord, John chapter 3, and if we don't believe, then we run this earthly course and the eternal life is not ours to see. This is the basic and logical premise of salvation, that God has a relationship with those who choose to have a relationship with him and to acknowledge his threefold testimony.
verse 13, without tapping onto next week's sermon, does explain this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Here's, what, here's who you are and what that means. Here's the evidence and these witnesses and this advantage. That's the cool thing that John's trying to get across here. And my question as we close is this. What are we needing to overcome in our lives at the moment? What is hindering our obedience to God? Is it something moral? Something moral that we're just wrestling with so much that stops us from really enjoying being part of God's family? Is it something intellectual? Something that we just cannot get our heads around? Something that, is battling, that we're battling with that doesn't seem to square up, that's preventing us from enjoying that relationship? Or is it even something physical? some kind of physical prohibiting factor that stops us from accessing what we need to. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if we accept the testimony of the water, blood and spirit, and we are confident in our eternal life, are we therefore confident enough to continue and believe that we overcome the world? Not in our own strength, but through our faith. Every day we walk with him, we are overcoming the world. Margaret.